Hello and happy day. How does slowing down sound to you today? Would you like to reduce the noise for just a bit? Are you ready to make a choice and decide to listen? My name is Igor S.F. Walker. I am here to remind people to slow down, to reduce the noise, to walk their lives into a natural flow. Welcome back to the Book of the Week series. Every week, as I read another amazing title, I share it with the world. Today, we look at what do women want? Adventures in the Science of Female Desire by Daniel Partner. It wasn't until the 70s that sexologists began zeroing in on what women want rather than what women do. And then AIDS engulfed the attention of the discipline, prevention became everything, and only in the late 90s did the full-scale exploration of desire start all over again. If promiscuity were considered normal in teenage girls and not in teenage boys, if it were allotted in girls and condemned as slutty and distasteful in boys. If young women instead of young men were encouraged to collect notches on their belts, how might the lives of females and males, how might the appearances that evolutionary psychology treats as immutable be different? Parental investment theory. It goes like this. Because men have limitless sperm, while women have limited eggs. Because men don't have to invest much of worth in reproduction, while women invest not only their ova, but their bodies, as they take on the tolls and risks of pregnancy and childbirth. Because women then invest further in breastfeeding, investment being in time and in extra calories required, and if they postpone the ability to conceive another child, because of this economy of input, far more pressingly relevant to our prehistoric ancestors, to our ever-endangered forebears, than to the humans of today, males have been programmed since way back when to ensure and expand their genetic legacy by spreading their cheap seed, while females have been scripted to maximize their investment by being choosy, by securing a male likely to have good genes and a good long-term provider ability to her and her offspring. The libido is in sense two-tiered. There's the lower realm, in which hormones rise up from the ovaries and adrenal glands float along the bloodstream to the brain and fuel the production of the brain's neurotransmitters. How exactly this fueling happens is still a mystery. So is the quantity of fuel needed to keep the production line running well. The higher realm is the brain itself, the domain of the neurotransmitters. These are biochemicals, not the lowly hormones, uh, the essence of lust. 
dopamine and its atoms arranged like an antennaed head with a spiky tail and is in a way a molecular embodiment of desire, its main chemical carrier. It isn't only that, it speeds through a multitude of the brain's subregions and it exists in infinite relationships with other neurotransmitters and it has all sorts of effect for motor control where trembling and sluggishness of Parkinson's patients stems from shortage of dopamine all the way to memory. But dopamine is the substance of lust. Two tiny territories of the brain primal core, the medial preoptic area and the ventral tegmental area are the heart of dopamine's sexual system, the ground zero of desire. For the excitement of dopamine to fix on an object, for it to be felt as desire rather than as a splintering into attentional chaos, it has to work in balance with other neurotransmitters. Serotonin plays an indispensable part and unlike dopamine's keen drive, serotonin dampens. Unlike dopamine's lust, serotonin instills satiation. The neurotransmitters, they also allow the brain's frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex, the region of planning and self-control to communicate effectively, to exert what is known as executive functions. Serotonin reduces urgent need and impulse. It facilitates sensibility through thoughts and orderly actions. And the problem though is if serotonin is too strong in relation to dopamine, a woman making love is likely to find herself thinking about the next day's schedule rather than feeling overtaken by the sensations and the cravings. But with serotonin and dopamine in the right balance, the erotic energy will be neither displaced by tomorrow's to-do list nor permitted to fracture into chaos. Now, within the frontal lobe and with the libidinous core in harmony, desire can have both form and force. In the end, the findings were straightforward, social structure and maybe something embedded physically in the act of initiating. Altered perceptions, decisions and eros. Improbably yet unmistakably the shift to call right away when women were the ones that moved near and said yes as often and indiscriminately as did, as did the men. And when women were the ones who crisscrossed the room and closed in on men, the ratings of desire become just as lustful as they do in men. With the rules adjusted, a new reality leapt fleeingly into sight. The attainment of a woman's wish acquired not closeness, but a measure of distance. An object of lust was, by necessity, a part. Be warned against the expectation or even the hope of reaching the popular romantic dreams of merging with the partner, of being able to say, you complete me. 
this was the wrong standard for love, this kind of a bond, or just even striving for it, could suffocate Eris. Melding left no separation to span, no distance for the lover's drive to cross, no endpoint for the full force of the drive to be felt. Please, do help out. It is easy. Simply like this video so more people can enjoy it. Share it too and spread the word. Subscribe to my channel and stay up to date. And the link to this book is in the description below. So buy it and read. Never stop learning. Thank you. Love and respect.